It is a joy, might even use the word, it is a gift. Um, I believe it's a gift that we're able to gather together here um, in worship. I think it's a gift, I, I hope and pray it's a gift I never take for granted again, um, to be able to gather with the people of God um, and worship Him. And if you're online with us, it's, it's a gift that we have technology um, to be able to do that um, and to have you with us here today as well. My name's Tim Barton, I'm the pastor of Family Ministries here, if you don't know me. I want you to start by just thinking about this question this morning. How does God the Father love us? But as you think about that now, I want you to make that a little more personal. And as you sit there, um, think, how does God the Father love me? Last week was Father's Day, um, and, and around Father's Day and Mother's Day, a lot of times you, if you ask a child, um, a, a younger child, how do you know that God, or that, that God, how do you know that your parents, your father or your mother love you? Um, what kind of answers do you get? You normally get something like, well, um, they cook for me, they wash clothes for me, they uh, provide what I need, they care for me. Uh, you know, you get that list of things that kind of comes out of, these are what our parents do for us and that's how I know they love me, right? That's true, that's not untrue. Um, but then we often take that kind of a step further, right, with, with God. When, when we ask that question, how do I know God loves me? We kind of, or, or how does God love me? We say, well, we start to list off those practical things. Well, he provides me with a job. He provides me with um, th food to eat. He provides me with things to wear, all those things. We start, to, we start to name those things off. And again, they're not wrong. That is part of it. That is part of what he does. And yet that can be incomplete. When we begin to think that way, often our, we, now our experience of God's love is based upon our circumstances. It's based upon the quote that we use this terminology, right? The practical ways, we use, uh, use air quotes there, uh, that, that God um, loves us. And so then if we change that question around a little bit more and we say, what would it take for you? If I ask you, what would it take for you to feel that God loves you? Your answer and my answer sometimes might be like some friends and strangers that I asked this week um, that, that responded in this way. I would know God loves me if he fixes this relationship. I would know God loves me. I would feel his love for me if he would provide me with a job or with a better job. I would know God loves me if he protects my children from harm. I would know God loves me if he would bless me with children or if he would fix this mess that our country's in. I would know God loves me if he'd give me enough money to pay off this debt I shouldn't have or if he would rid the world of cancer, or if he would make me feel better. Those are all honest answers. Those were real answers this week. And they're all things that I agree with, that I will pray for, and, and even ask some non-Christians this week, can I pray for you, that, that God would even do this for you? The problem though, is that if we determine God's God, that God loves us by these metrics, by these criteria, then we have no basis to know or experience God's love even when circumstances are not what we want them to be. We're in the middle of a series called God Our Father from 1 John. 
the book of 1 John. And each week we're looking at the bold statements of the Apostle John and what that teaches us about who God is and why that matters for our lives today. And so today, my intention is that we answer that question. Back to the one I asked you at the beginning. How does the Father love us? We're going to read from 1 John chapter 3, um, verses 1 through 10. And as we do so, I remind you um, that this is the Word of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who, who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Father, we come before you today and... Um, Lord, I ask that you would show us how you love us. Lord, that those who are here today um, that are followers of you, Lord, might have an increased confidence and assurance of your love. Lord, that those who are here today that may not know you or that still question these things of you, Lord, that you would be gracious and kind today. Lord, that you would demonstrate that your love is greater than anything else this world has to offer. Lord, for that to happen today, um, would you speak through the preparation in my mind and heart or speak around it if necessary? Lord, that your name might be exalted, your hope might be given. And Lord, that we might leave here today encouraged um, by the love of the Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go through this passage today, um, you probably noticed when I was reading it that it felt like John was like a, going back and forth as he, as he goes through it and kind of all over the place is what it feels like as you read through that passage. Um, today, as, as we look at this, because I'm, I'm going to have to jump 
from um, back and forth a little bit. So I, I'm going to do my best to take you with me when I do that um, from verse to verse. I'll tell you where we are. Um, and if you have questions afterwards, please come talk to me. Um, that being said, let's start in verse, um, or let me give you a little bit of the background just in case you haven't been with us um, the, the Apostle John, the one who was with Jesus, um, is now um, later writing and making an argument telling Christians as followers of Jesus in Ephesus, and then this letter circulated through um, Asia Minor, but telling them that they do belong to Jesus, even though the false teachers are telling them otherwise. So the false teachers, um, if you, I'm not going to go back and read it right now, but if you look back at chapter 2, verse 18, and then following into verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2, the false teachers are who he calls the Antichrist, the, the little a plural, Antichrist. And those, these are those who deny who Jesus is. They deny that they need Jesus, and they deny the connection with the Father and the Son. All right? That's what it says in verses 22 and 23. Uh, that's a whole other sermon that we can talk about later if, you, if, if you'd like to. But he's saying that's who these are. And what these false teachers are saying now, specifically in this passage, um, and in the context of the, the, the book of 1 John, is that, um, they don't, that the people don't belong to Jesus. Or John, I'm sorry, let me just say it this way. The people are saying that, um, or that John's telling the people, you do belong to Jesus, even though the false teachers are telling you don't, telling you you don't, even though the circumstances you are in make you feel like that's not true. All right. The Father loves you. And so what I want to show you today and, and help us answer is how he loves you. Let's look at um, the first point, which is the Father calls us his children. That's the first way he loves us, is that we are called his children. Verses one and two. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Then in verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. In the ESV, which is what I'm reading from here, it says, see, that word is behold, um, or, and so, so the connotation is this, pay attention to, stop everything else you're doing, Stop everything you're sitting there thinking about right now. Listen to me. This is important. That's what John's saying. He's, and then he says to them, you are children of God. And then in verse 2 at the beginning, he repeats it. You are children of God. What does it mean then to be a child of God? We need to stop on that and think about that for a minute. First, what it's not. A child of God is not someone who has done enough to convince God to take them in. A child of God is someone of whom God has said, you were separated from me because of sin. You have no right to come to me. You could never earn your way into my family. You couldn't even get your big toe in the door on your own. You deserve nothing. But because of my great love, I sent Jesus to live the perfect life to die the death that you deserve, to take that wrath, that word propitiation that's throughout John, um, 1 John, to take this wrath and give you the righteousness of Christ. And because of what Jesus has done for you, you as a child have all the rights and inheritances that belong to Jesus. So I will take care of you. I will love you. I will not leave you. You are my child. Then he tells the people at the end of verse 2, and you are God's children now. 
This isn't just something for future context. This isn't just something looking out to heaven. You are God's children now. And that's important in the context because in the context, he's battling the false teachers who were telling the people, you're not God's children yet. And we know, you know, you kind of know this Jesus thing, but you're not God's children yet because you don't have enough of the, the enough of the knowledge. In their case, the secret knowledge, but you don't have enough of the knowledge. They're telling them you need something more to know that you are God's children. It's knowledge there for us. In our culture, it can be knowledge, but it can also be you need to know you're God's child. You need good circumstances or you need financial stability. You need blessings and good health. You all hear that? That is what has been. Say this clearly. That is the lie that has become a big portion of American Christianity. That's not what the Bible says. It's going on then all the way back when John's writing this letter. <laughs> it still goes on today in different forms. We need to be aware of that. We call it what it is because it robs us. John says, pay attention to this. You have been given this great love. What he starts with, see the kind of love, or if you're in the NIV, see the great love which, which the Father has loved us. It's a type of gift that's been given that you can't earn. Now, kids, if you're sitting, I'm, I'm going to talk to some kids for a second. Where are they? There we go. If you're sitting in here, but everybody pay attention. Because if your parents say to you, um, or you go to your parents and you say, I want a game or I want a toy. All right, maybe it's a video game, it's a toy, whatever. And you go to your parents and you say, I want this. And your parents say, okay, um, I'm going to give you three extra chores. You do these three extra chores and then, you're gonna, then, then I'll get you the game. And they do that. A lot of times that's how we treat God's love. We think when we're going to God and saying, God, treat me as your child. And, and God, if you, if, um, will you show me your love? And, and we think God says, yeah, but you need to do these three extra things first. Just to, just to prove you're still, you're still with me. But kids, what God does is God actually says, it'd be like your parents saying, coming home from work one day, walking in and saying, here's the gift of this game. Here's the gift of this toy that you wanted. What do we do then? The only way we can take that is we receive it and we give thanks for it. We don't always do that for the toys and games, but um, we receive it and we give thanks for it. We don't deserve, John's telling the Christians there and, and then us, we don't deserve the love God's given us. We don't deserve the the, to be his children. But that's what we've been given. That's what it means to say we're children of God. It's not just that we've been called that in name. It's deeper than that. He's called us children, and so we are. When we're born in this world or when we're adopted into a family, we're called by the last name of the parent. And what that means is that it's not just a title. It demonstrates your identity. It demonstrates what you get to start with in life. It demonstrates the blessings you have in that it, it, um, and, and who you get to be around. 
And in the case of, of Christians, of followers of Jesus, it means something amazing. Look at verse 9, and this is where we've got to skip ahead, but we'll come back. Look at verse 9 for a minute. In verse 9, speaking of those who have been born of God, who have received the gift of his love through, through Jesus, it says God's seed, this is the second half, God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. When we received his great love, when we are called his children, it means that God's seed abides in us. And based on this passage and how John uses the word seed and abide in his other writings, uh, the seed may be the spirit of God. It may be the word of God. It's probably both. Um, but, and, and the point is this, though, is that we are his children when his seed abides in us. And because his seed abides in us, God himself is at work in us so powerfully that we cannot make peace with a pattern of sinful behavior. This is where this gets slightly uncomfortable. We're going to talk about it, and then we'll, we'll come back around in a minute. You see, that's what makes his love so great. He gives us his love that we do not deserve, that we could not earn. He calls us as children, and we can have confidence this is true because he doesn't stop there. That's the second. Now let's look to the second way the father loves us. The father battles for us. It's the second way he loves us. When I was in 10th grade, um, I had a project due and, and um, the, the teacher wanting to not let us all kind of drift into this, this new home computer thing, told us we had to handwrite the project. It felt enormous to me. It was only like five handwritten pages. I thought I would never finish. Um, I do this project and, and the day we turned it in, um, that we had a substitute teacher and there were about 20 of us that all turned it in at the same time. We came up and put it on the desk. A couple days went by. And my father, um, sitting at dinner one night, said, son, did, did you turn your paper in for history class? Keep in mind, I loved history, so this wasn't even hard for me. Like, I enjoyed doing this thing, except for it felt like big. Um, I enjoyed the study of it. So I said, yeah, I turned it in. Yes, sir. He said, okay. I thought that was an odd question. Didn't think much about it. Um, the next day, I'm in, sitting in this class, I believe it was in second period, but I'm sitting in this class and, and my teacher, who I really liked, he was my favorite teacher, um, he comes up to me and he said, he said, Tim, um, did you turn your project in? Yes, sir. I don't think this is a coincidence that you're asking me this now. Uh, I said, yes, sir, I turned it in. He goes, well, the substitute said, he said, I don't have your paper and the substitute said you didn't turn it in. It's like, um... Well, I did. He's like, okay. And I, now I'm starting to get angry. I'm getting angry and, and in, inside. I'm sitting in class. I'm getting angry because I did turn this thing in. You better know I turned it in. That's one part. But I'm more angry because my father asked me that question the night before, didn't say anything else about it, and now he hung me out to dry. That's what I felt like at that moment. Halfway through the class, I look up at the door and my father's standing there with someone from the office. And the, he and the teacher go out and they talk for a few minutes. They pull me out for a minute. They ask me one more time. I said, yes, I did it. I go back in class. I sit down. Now, here's the thing. I honestly have no clue if I ever got a grade for that paper or not. I don't remember that. But what I remember is that my father came and battled for me. 
The Heavenly Father battles for us, but the stakes are way higher than a silly grade on a paper. Let me show you how. The first way that he battles for us, there's two parts to it, is that he purifies us. Look at verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know, when we read this, um, if you read it on first glance, we can read it and think, I'm hoping in God now, so now I must go and purify myself and make myself more like Jesus. The problem is, is that after hoping in God, we do that and then sometimes we forget that as his children, we have his seed in us. And so when we forget that, what we start trying to do at that point is fight this in our own strength. How many of you have ever tried to fight sin in your own strength? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise mine. And what happens then? It's demoralizing. It's exhausting. Why? Because we don't have our own, it in our own strength. It's only by his seed working in us, by his strength, by his power. In verse 2 and 3, John is saying that when Jesus returns, we will be made like Jesus fully. That's how the Father battles for us. Sin will be no more in us. So when we hope in him, when we hope in Jesus, we can know, understand this isn't some probable percentage where we think we can beat the odds. We can know, it says, that when he returns, we will be purified. That's the motivation to battle sin within us now. Our hatred for sin comes from God and his abiding in us. Our power to fight sin comes from God and his abiding in us. As soon as we start trying to see our sin or fight our sin without him, we begin to act in hopelessness. Or we set up some, some sort of rules to compare ourselves to others because somehow we think um, we, that means we're progressing in our Christian life. That leads us to the other part of how the Father battles for us. The second part is he destroys the works of the devil. Look at verse 8 again. And this in the second part of the verse says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? I believe what he's saying here is the works of the devil is the practice of sin. Um, so just before what I just read in, in the second half of verse eight, um, just before that, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Then he says, what I just read was the, the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Then in verse nine, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. In both these verses, the Greek verb tense for practice and sinning implies an ongoing, continuous action. That's why the ESV and, um, and NASB and several others translate it this practice of sinning and not just the word sin because it doesn't fully capture what we're talking about. It's this ongoing thing. 
And what John seems to be saying here is that it is impossible for the life of a follower of Jesus to remain completely unchanged. It is impossible for the life of a follower of Jesus to look exactly like it did prior to the time we understood our sin, prior to the time we understood our need for Jesus. Followers of Jesus will continue to sin. I don't think that's a surprise to any of us. Followers of Jesus will continue to sin, but John makes clear that followers of Jesus will not go on sinning without conflict and unsettledness in our hearts. We won't go on sinning without repentance. Now, do you remember, and I'll even ask the kids, but all of you think about this. Do you remember the first time you knew you had done something wrong? First time you knew you had done something wrong, or the last time, whichever, um, when you knew you had done something wrong, you may remember the feeling. It was this unsettledness, this turmoil, or maybe just the feeling first of, did anyone else notice I did that or thought that? You knew it wasn't right, even as a child. But as we grow older, what can happen is we can learn to numb that feeling by growing accustomed to the thing um, that, we, that we're talking about, growing accustomed so that it doesn't bother you anymore, or using substances, um, or using entertainment, or using achievements to help you forget about it. But John is saying here, and this is important, that followers of Jesus will not be content or satisfied to keep on sinning without an unsettledness because God's seed abides in us. That's what he's saying in verses four through six. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Two weeks ago, we defined sin as doing what God said is wrong and leaving undone what God says is good for us. In verse four, we see that definition more clearly. He says, sin is lawlessness. Well, what's the law? It's God's law. And it's summarized in the 10 commandments, but then more clearly and, and succinctly summarized by Jesus. Remember what Jesus' words were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Sin takes that. Sin in our hearts. The principalities of this world take that and they say this. I have a right to tell God what I think is best. I have a right to tell God I'm going to do what I want to do. I get to decide how much of my heart, soul, mind, and strength God gets I get to decide which people around me I want to love as myself. It is rebellion against God. It's rebellion against what he says is good. But followers of Jesus, we see our sin. We hate our sin. We confess our sin and we fight that sin as we continue to grow in relationship with God through Jesus. Because, again, it's not go do it yourself. We do that because God is battling for us. God is battling for those who are his children. 
The work of the devil, the work of Satan, is to nurture and cultivate the pride that puts our desires before what God says is good, before the law of God. And therefore, it's lawlessness, and it's the heart and core of sin. That's what the Son of God came to destroy. And all of you who are sitting there, and the one that's standing here, The Son of God came to destroy the guilt of sin and he came to destroy the practice or continuation of unrepentant sin in the lives of his children. It's a process. The word we have for it is sanctification. It's not immediate, but it's continual. And he's doing that work. Verse 10 says, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you have those in your life, those in your family, um, or maybe even in your own heart, your own personal things, where when you hear this passage, you worry. Um, you worry, uh, Lord, do they really know you? Or you're worried right now, Lord, do I really know you? I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to say, to pray for them. Our temptation is to go and to say to them, God says this, 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 this. And you're breaking all that. And there may be a time for that. But what, there's, what we're always called to do is say, Lord, would you please battle for them and show them their sin? Lord, would you please reveal that to them? And then in our hearts, are we willing to say, Lord, Please show me my sin. I know I have sin within me. Every one of you sitting there and standing here, every one of us has blind spots in our lives, things that God has not yet revealed to us in, that, that in the ways that we do not love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. You understand that when Jesus summarized it down to that, it's all-encompassing. We all have those places. But if we can ask him to show us that and then to change us and purify us, here's the beauty. When we do that, we then can have confidence that we are his children because, not because of what we've done, but because of his great love for us. And so how does the father love me if you go back to that? I want you to apply it this way. How does the Father love me? You ask that question. He calls me his child. And he battles for me. He calls me his child. And he battles for me. A friend of mine shared this quote with me earlier this week. And it's from um, pastor and author uh, Tim Keller. 
And he says, the only love that won't disappoint you is the one that can't change. The one that can't be lost. The one that's not based on the ups and downs of life or how well you live. It's something that not even death can take away from you. God's love is the only thing like that. Would you reflect on that a moment um, as we prepare for the Lord's table?